Hi, everybody. Welcome to week two of your podcast-only Sunday School. So we're going to continue to try to do things a little bit different um, and make our Sunday School lessons uh, both in person but also specifically for our podcast audience. So if you have any feedback, I would love to hear it. We're going to continue to try to do this better. You can shoot me an email at philip at oneprez.org. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P at oneprez.org. Or uh, you can uh, shoot me a text or just talk to me whenever you see me. But anyway, we're going to try and keep getting better with our uh, digital content here. And that includes your podcast Sunday School. So another thing that we've done is I have created a link to the little board that I'm using for my class. Uh, you can find that board by going to the church website, that's oneprez.org, clicking on virtual content, and then clicking on Sunday School. So it's three clicks will get you to the board that I'm using today. It has the web clippings that I'm going to talk about as well as the scripture passages. Uh, and so if you're a visual person and would like to have that, uh, then you will be able to do it. So anyway, that's going to be there for you. Now, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about prayer. Prayer is one of those things that all of us know as Christians that we need to do, but we aren't ever really sure how it works and what it means. So that's our topic for today. The specific question was prayer. What does it do and, and what is its efficacy? So that's what we're going to consider. So I'm going to start this conversation exactly the way that I started on Sunday, and I'm going to tell you this. Prayer doesn't work. It doesn't work. What do I mean by that? I mean that prayer is not a tool. It's not some sort of uh, spiritual hardware that we go pluck off the shelf and use as needed to solve problems. Uh, typically, we relate prayer to our problems. We get particularly fervent in our prayers uh, when we have less control. So my theory is the more uh, passionate our prayer life is, the more that corresponds to the feelings uh, that things are out of control in our lives. So this is a problem because we tend to think that if things are out of control, that if we just pray really hard, God will fix it. Um, and that's when we wonder, does prayer work? All of us have had times in our lives where we have had a real difficulty that we faced, and so we have prayed for resolution from God. Sometimes that resolution has come, but more often than not, it really hasn't. And so that can lead to a crisis of faith. Am I not faithful enough? Does God not care about me? Is God not really there? When we think about prayer as a tool for solving problems, then we're going to end up in this place sooner or later, because that's not ever what prayer was intended to be. And yet, we have a very strong cultural uh, bias towards viewing prayer in this way. So I'm going to share with you a couple things. First is a blog by someone named Lisa Jones, and she wrote a blog called Three Ways God Answers Prayer. And these are the three ways that she believes God answers prayer. Yes, no, or not now. So the problem I have with this is, first of all, that's basically the three answers you would get to almost any request. Yes, no, 
or not now. When you go into a restaurant at a busy time of day and you say, may I have a table? They're going to say yes, they're going to say no, or they're going to say not now. When you call 911 and you ask for help, they're going to say yes, they're going to say no, or they're going to say not now. I, this is kind of the problem with when we get into this idea of prayer as a tool. We think of it as something that should be answered in this very direct and explicit manner. Yes, no, not now. Uh, this is not helpful when we think about our prayer life. The ways in which God answers prayer, I think, has very little to do with the ways in which Miss Jones articulated them here in her blog post. Uh, so try to get out, first of all, of the idea of this, I'm going to pray for something, and then God is going to do one of these three things, and I'm going to be disappointed in two of them and really happy in the other one. That just leads to a fractured prayer life. What does Joel Osteen have to say about it? Here is a prayer from Joel Osteen. Heavenly Father, I may not understand how everything will work out, but I trust you. I don't see a way, but I know you will make a way. I have faith at this very moment you are touching hearts, opening doors, and lighting up the right opportunities. Things may look dark and bleak now, but I have faith that my dawn is coming in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what's wrong with that prayer? You know that if I'm putting it at the front, there's something I think is probably wrong with it. I asked the Sunday school class that question on Sunday, and Greg Roberts helpfully answered simply. He said, it's egocentric. Exactly. This prayer is all about the person praying, and specifically, it's all about them essentially getting what they want. Let's listen for that language. Uh, I don't see a way, but I know you will make a way. I have faith that you are touching hearts and opening doors right now. Um, I have faith that my dawn, my dawn, is coming. So think about uh, the language there. It completely orients the prayer back to themselves and back to the issues in their own lives. This prayer is exactly the type of tool-based prayer that I want us to try to move away from. There's some elements that aren't too bad, uh, such as, I trust you. Always good to tell God that you trust him. Um, and uh, also uh, that I may not understand how everything will work. Uh, that's definitely true. I mean, understanding is an elusive thing in matters of faith. But again, we can see the ways in which prayer has been construed culturally as a tool, as something that works. This, that prayer exists to solve the problems that we can't solve ourselves. Now, does this mean we should never offer our problems up to God? By no means. It doesn't mean that. Does it mean that God will never intervene in our lives? It doesn't mean that. But it means that our prayer life is something fundamentally different than viewing God as some sort of concierge or divine problem solver. That is not the gospel, and that is not what God intends for us. So what does God intend for us? Well, first, let's look at a little quote about prayer from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a reform document from the 16th century, written uh, exclusively at that time to discuss the role of prayer and worship. 
which is what you shall hear uh, in what I'm about to read to you. So listen to this from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll read it twice. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of his Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Okay, listen to that again. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of his Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Think of the ways in which this contrasts with what we have heard, and think of the attributes of prayer or a prayer life. Understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. This is a complicated way of thinking about prayer. These things are hard, but they're rich. They're nuanced, but they guide us and shape our prayer life. Let's just quickly walk through them. Prayer, understanding. What's the first element of understanding in prayer? It is understanding who we are praying to. We are praying to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are praying in Jesus' name. We're praying to the creator of all that is. We're praying to a God that was before us, lives during us, and will be after us. We pray to a God who exists outside of time, a God who conceived of all that is. This is a big being to engage in prayer with. God is substantial. So we understand this the minute we begin our prayer, and this leads to reverence. What is reverence? It's that understanding of the holiness with which we are interacting. Interacting with God is different than inter interacting with any other being that we encounter, which leads us to humility. There is God, and we are not God. We are God's creatures. Scripture uses the word doulos to describe us. That means slave or servant. We live in a humbled relationship with God. We've been separated by sin, and we need God more than ever in our lives and in our world. So humility is vital, but then also fervency. Praying fervently means praying with passion and with diligence. We don't think of prayer as something as wor that works because that does not lead to fervency except desperation. Desperation and fervency are not the same thing. So when we think of prayer, we think of being fervent in our prayer. That's diligent, consistent. And then we get faith and love. These are things that we bring to the prayer which are vital. We have faith that the God to whom we are praying cares about our lives and loves us. And we bring love for that same God to the prayer. And then finally, perseverance. We stick with it regardless of the circumstances of our lives Regardless of how things are going, we pray. And we pray, as this part of the confession guides us, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. So these are elements of deep, deep humility 
and elements which pull us away from ourselves. They're the opposite of egocentrism. They don't make the prayer about me. They make the prayer about God. The very act of building a prayer around thanksgiving pulls us away from ourselves and reorients us towards the God who has done so much for us. Okay, let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. So we're going to read, um, well, we're not going to read that one first. We're going to read that a second. So first, we're going to read from Philippians 1, 3 to 11. So this is Paul beginning his letter to the church in Philippi during a time in which he is in prison. So here he goes. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So it's a beautiful piece of writing there from Paul, and you can hear the ways in which his prayer life is woven into that greeting to his friends. First, he prays with joy for them. They are a source of strength for him uh, during his imprisonment. He uh, is thankful that they share in the gospel with him. Again, pulling him away from himself, praying for others, and specifically for those who share his faith. One thing we probably do not do is pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church enough. Uh, and this is what Paul is doing. He's praying for those who share his faith. And then towards the end, we get prayer language again. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. So this has an eschatological con uh, context as well. Paul's prayer looks towards the end of time, toward the second coming of Christ, and the ways in which his friends will relate to that day. And his prayer is that they will be able to stand with their heads held high on that day for the work that they have done, and then this harvest of righteousness that has been produced through their faith and the work of Christ. This is a broad prayer. It's a prayer that pulls Paul out of himself even while he's in prison. It's a prayer which focuses on joy, thanksgiving, love, and gratitude. And it's a prayer which is cosmic in its scope. This prayer is not about something that works. It's not about effecting some sort of change. Paul does not pray that he will be released from prison. He doesn't pray that he'll sleep better. Paul prays for his friends. And so while we can be sure that he prayed about his context, uh, here, that is not the focus of his prayer. The focus of his prayer is his friends. So let's take a look at another prayer. This is Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. I'm going to stop for a second. I'm going to say, every time I have ever read this in worship, I have said, place called Geth Gethsemane. <laughs> it lends itself to a lisp. So I'm going to start again. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, 
Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So that concludes that reading. Uh, again, look at how prayer functions in this most dire moment of Jesus' life. He knows what lies ahead. He's not sure if he can do it. And again and again, he focuses on being emotionally honest in his prayers. I'm scared. I'm grieved. I'm anxious. And then he also focuses on the strength to do God's will. Contrast this with the Osteen prayer, which said, Things may look dark and bleak now, but I have faith that my dawn is coming. Jesus did not pray that his dawn would come. Instead, he prayed that he would have the strength and endurance to do a very difficult thing for his faith. Jesus' faith was hard. It led him to the cross. He tells us that our faith can lead us to the same place. If we are to do that, then our prayer life must be similar to his. A prayer life which recognizes how hard things are, but also asks to strengthen us to continually conform our actions and wills to God's action and will. So again, a prayer that looks out from ourselves, not inward, away from ourselves, uh, and looks towards God's will. Okay, so this is not scripture. This is Martin Luther King. Let's listen to his prayer. Eternal God, out of whose mind this great cosmic universe, uh, we bless you. Help us to seek that which is high, noble, and good. Help us in the moment of difficult decision. Help us to work with renewed vigor for a warless wor world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brother and sisterhood that transcends race or color. So consider Martin Luther King Jr.'s prayer here. Again, I hate to keep harping on this, but it's so important. Just even the pronouns. He uses us and we pronouns, pronouns which convey community, which pull away from individual thinking. Obviously, these things were important to him, but he recognized their importance to other people. And he recognized the role other people have, that we have, in helping to affect the change that God wants in this world. Help us to work with renewed vigor. Help us in the moment of difficult decision. Help us to seek that which is high, noble, and good. This is a transformative prayer. And that brings me to the main point of all of this. Prayer, ultimately, is not about getting what we want. It is about changing us. As we go through our lives, which we should view as a spiritual journey or pilgrimage, prayer is one of the primary ways in which we walk that journey. Prayer guides us in our decisions 
Prayer strengthens us in hard times. Prayer reminds us that there is more to life than what we want. Prayer teaches us that we are in relationship with a divine being that we can barely fathom and whom we should approach with reverence and awe. And in our most dark and difficult moments, prayer is the outlet through which we say, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Prayer is about transformation, and it's about guiding us on a journey of faith which we walk together. So as we wrap up, I have this little guide from Max Lucado. And he wrote a book called Before Amen, and he summarized all of scriptural prayer into this. Father, you are good. I need help. So do they. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a very good structure for prayer and a very simple way for us to think about it. How does it start out? Father. It starts out with a word of reverence and humility. Father, acknowledging God's guidance and leadership in our lives. Then, you are good. Words of praise. It's important that we give thanks to God and we praise God for who God is. And then we say, I need help. Primarily, the thing we need help with is our own sin. And here in Presbyterian world, we pray a prayer of confession every week, confessing our sin before God and one another. That's the I need help. And then also the areas of our lives where we need help. If we're sick, we should absolutely pray about that. If we have friends about whom we are worried, we should pray about that. We need help. And so do they, Lucado writes. So that's where we write it, where we pray for our friends, for the world, for our enemies. Then we say thank you, and then we say in Jesus' name, amen. So our prayer is not some tool that we take off a rack when things get beyond us. Instead, our prayer is something which gives structure to our lives and to our days. So I hope this will help you to reflect on your prayer life. I hope that you will spend some time in prayer today, and I hope that you will join us again. So I'm going to say goodbye for today. And Tasha will be doing this for you next week. Again, if you have any guidance, uh, we would very much appreciate that. The Sunday School topic for next Sunday uh, is, let's see, Tasha's going to be talking about it. Oh, yeah, born again, salvation, and baptism. Born again, salvation, and baptism. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, be be sure to tune back into this podcast next week. Until then, peace.